Greetings, and welcome to the I.O. Tower, a podcast for all things Tron. I'm your host, David Fleming. In this episode, I talk with Tron storyboard artist and computer image choreographer Bill Croyer. Bill was working at Disney when Steven Lisberger lured him away to work as animator on Animal Olympics, and from there was among the first to begin working with Steven on Tron. Bill describes how Tron was originally conceived of as a hand-animated feature, but once Disney signed on with a bigger budget, computer animation techniques quickly expanded the possibilities. Along with storyboard artists Jerry Reese and the legendary Jean Mobius Giraud, Bill had a blast storyboarding Tron. But the inclusion of computer-generated imagery presented the first-ever challenge of moving a story through both hand-drawn and computer-animated scenes seamlessly. To meet this challenge, Bill and Jerry developed a method of conveying three space movements of digital objects, writing thousands of numbers on a first-ever form of animation sheet for computer animators. After Tron, Bill worked on the similarly inspired Automan TV series, developing Automan's sidekick, Cursor, a character much like Bit from Tron. Bill shares many stories with us from his 40-plus years in Hollywood, including his time at Magi Synthivision, Digital Productions, Croyer Films, Rhythm and Hughes, and Chapman University as head of their digital arts department. Welcome to the I.O. Tower. Greetings, Bill, and thank you for talking with me on the I.O. Tower. I believe you were one of the first people to begin working with Steven Lisberger on Tron. So, how did that happen? Well, I'm just about as early uh, a participant as you can find, because as you know, I was Steve Lisberg's animation director at Animal Olympics. And when he came up with the idea to do Tron, you know, I was one of the guys he turned to right away and said, can you start drawing storyboards and ideas for this thing? Yeah. And so I think that I was doing that right about the time the other person came aboard, which is Bonnie McBird, who, of course, co-wrote the project with him. So. As far as longevity and early, I think I'm probably one of the earliest people to touch the project. Wow, that's amazing. You know, when we, start, we started it, it was like, a, you know, you have to realize that video games in those days, it was the arcade days, you know. Yeah. It's a totally, totally different world. They were still a novelty. And yeah. very few people, really, the general public didn't really have much involvement with them. It was definitely a click. And Steve had this idea, which was a very clever idea, to have you know, a human being gets sucked into a video game. It was just a very simple concept. And forming that idea and developing it into a story was what we did at Lisberger Studios. And Steve went out and hired a couple of pretty cool visual development artists like Peter Lloyd, you know. Yes. To do uh, do development art to give the idea of a glowing, you know, internal world, and we started drawing little animation tests and boarding little sequences. And then um, Steve actually shot a little test. I don't know if you've ever seen that with Larry Anderson. But the most interesting part of that was the fact that uh, a guy named Alan Kay, who's one of the Five Apple Fellows, heard about the project and started flying down from San Francisco every Friday night on his own dime, just to meet with us huh. and talk about, wow. talk about the future of computer games. And that was really fun. Alan, Alan was a brilliant guy. And of course, as you may know, that led to a budding romance between Alan Kay and the writer, Bonnie McBird, and they started dating and had been married for the <laughs> past 30 years. Yes, so, yes. How about that? 
Yeah. And one thing that was kind of funny about it was they basically kind of eventually sided against Stephen. Uh, <laughs> they ended up having creative differences. And of course, Alan, he bonded with Bonnie. And so it turned out that the expert that Steve hired ended up kind of sort of turning against him, which was kind of a, you know, funny. I don't know, so, you know, but, you know I, I don't think Steve ever looked at it as really like quote, turning against him. But I remember having <laughs> very, very spirited arguments in that conference about some of the ideas on the picture. Yes. And I guess you started working with Steve Lisberger on his 1980 film Animal Olympics, which just predated Tron. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, I was at Walt Disney in the animation department. I believe I had, I was working on Fox and Hound. I've been in Fox and Hound for about a year. And Steve Lisberger, and we were finishing that picture. And the next picture on the slate was going to be Black Cauldron, which did not look great. Okay. And Steve Lisberger rolls into town and somehow, and this would never happen now, he got himself literally invited into the building and came into our room and basically and asked, hey, can he said, can you get some of the other animators together? And we had the biggest room. I was in the old, I was in Frank and Ollie's old room. It was like a suite. Wow. And I shared that room with, with Brad Bird and John Musker and Henry Selleck. And, uh, Everybody used to hang out in our room because we were, they called us the rat's nest, as you probably heard the story. <laughs> but anyway, I can't believe it. Lisberger actually came in there and pitched us about leaving Disney to work for him. You can't even travel around your own micro circuits without permission from master control program. Who does he calculate he is? I, I was, <laughs> I believe that. And I'm the only one that was a sucker enough to do it. I mean, because I just thought, well, this sounds like a fun picture and Steve sounds like a fun guy. I just do, don't want to work on Black Cauldron. Maybe I can come back to Disney after this. So I'm the only one that deserted, and I went to work for Steve and uh, really enjoyed it. You know, we had this little warehouse down in Venice, California, on Andalusia Avenue, which is now Abbott Kinney Boulevard, and made the entire movie in that one building, which I'm not sure that's ever been done before or since, to make an entire animated feature film. Everything, camera, ink and paint, everything in one building. Wow. And... Um, that crew started to grow and became kind of legendary. You know, we had Roger Allers who went on to direct the Lion King. We had and Brad Bird, of course, when he was fired from Disney, since he was my good friend, I immediately snatched him up and said, Hey, you want to work for us? And he came over and did Animal Olympics. And we had Daryl Rooney, who's gone on to direct like a half dozen TV movies at Sony and Dave Steffen, one of the great board artists in town. I mean, so we, we ended up having like a, all-star crew in that little movie. Wow. And a blast. We just had a blast because it was, you know, we, the budget was so low and the time was so short, there was no time to overthink anything. So yeah. Steve would just come up with an idea for a hockey sequence or a swimming sequence, and he'd say, here, do something like this. And we would sit and we'd storyboard our own sequences and run them by Steve, and he'd say, you know, do this and this and this. And then we'd often do our own layouts, and animate this, animate the whole thing, and have to one assistant. The assistant would clean it up. It would go to ink and paint, and uh, that's how that movie was made. It was made really fast, and it has a look of a short film, like almost like a Warner Brothers short. Yeah. But uh, you know, there's a, it's a lot of fun. And then of course the thing happened with the boycott of the Olympics, and it was never screened in America, which was a sad thing. But uh, right. anyway, it was a lot of fun to make, and that was the the happy environment in which Tron was spawned. Wow. So if I understand correctly, Bill, Steve Lisberger was already working on Tron as Animal Olympics was under production. And about the time that Animal Olympics 
when the Olympics got canceled and Animal Olympics wasn't going to show that he was pretty much ready to roll with the concept of Tron. Um, so that's that's about the time he pitched to you and you came on board for production storyboards, and computer image choreography. Well, the computer image choreography had not yet been even conceived as possible <laughs> yet. Remember, that was not nobody. We thought we were going to do Tron as a hand animated film. Wow. And the early tests were done with hand animation on paper. And then the difference being that instead of inking and painting the paper line, the drawings, those were turned into codoliths and they were shot backlit to make them look like they were, you know, glowing lines. That was the original idea for Tron. It was only after the project was picked up by Disney that Steve had a knew he was going to have a big budget that he actually put out the feelers to the computer graphics companies in America and they started sending in um, tests. The first ones I think we saw were when we'd already moved to Burbank to the Disney lot. I mean, could be wrong about that, but I don't remember seeing any, you know, because originally, as I said, it was going to be done as a 2D animated film with backlit effects. And as far as me coming on board, like I said, I was uh, I was this, the animation director of Animal Olympics, so I was just started I just started doing assignments for Tron as I could, you know. And then after Animal Olympics was done, you're right, he kept me on, and and I went full bore into Tron storyboarding and everything. And the thing about that that was interesting was, you know, at Disney in those days, it was like minimum seven or eight years for an assistant for a beginning animator to be named a full animator. And it, it would take it could take you a decade to become a director. And I left Disney. And then, you know, about a year and a half later, I come waltzing back in. And Steve Lisberger says, this is my animation director. And they go, he can't be your animation director. He <laughs> he just left here a year and a half ago. And Steve just said, that's too bad. He's my animation director. And so I kind of vaulted my status at Disney. I, I basically skipped about eight years of uh, work becoming an animation director at Disney on Tron. Wow. So tell me a little bit about the storyboards that you started with for Tron. Originally, we were boarding little bits of the script that Steve and Bonnie wrote. And those we did um, just enough to do things like the test you saw with Larry Anderson. But as soon as Disney picked up the project... And we went into Disney, then we clicked into regular full storyboard mode. And, you know, when we went back to Disney, again, I put the feelers out who would like to work on this project. And the one guy who jumped at it was Jerry Reese. Oh. Uh, Jerry Reese really wanted to. He was in the animation department, but he wanted to do something innovative. By the way, that has remained. Jerry has remained true to that spirit ever since. As you may know, he's become like one of the top innovative uh, technologists of Disney feature parks of the parks and the, and the cruises. He does all these really new feature attractions with new technology. So Jerry has kind of re retained that kind of wow. like passion for innovative projects, but he was the one guy that came over and then they set him and me up in a room in the second floor, a story word room. And then the third guy that came into that room to work with us was none other than Jean Giraud, wow. also known as Mobius. And he came in and the three of us just took the script and just started boarding. Wow. And I don't know if you've ever seen Mobius's work, but mm -hmm. he was one of the greatest geniuses I've ever seen or heard of. And his he immediately adopted a very simple style for boarding Tron, you know, with, wow. with uh, 
markers and these great cool and warm gray markers for for shading and jerry and i just immediately just adopted mobius's technique and that's how we <laughs> the whole movie and oh, that, um, that's amazing yeah and every day we just go through we just board 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 the three of us boarded the entire feature film and you know god i don't know maybe four months really fast and so then we and then we did revisions and stuff and and when that was over you know Donald Kushner said, well, would you guys stay on and, and direct the animation? And we said, yeah. Oh, very nice. So and all the storyboards, um, I, I mean, I have seen a good bit of Mobius's work and particularly with respect to his work with you, I now know, uh, on Tron. And it's just absolutely beautiful and just mesmerizing work. What would you say were some of your favorite storyboards from Tron? Well, without a doubt. The landmark sequence that I was responsible for was the light cycle chase. It's kind of become the the symbol of the entire movie, you know. Yes. And Steve just handed me that idea, you know, like we like all the ideas just from the script. There was a basic idea of how it was going to work, and it's been some basic drawings about how those, you know, Mobius. I mean, um, Sid Mead had already done the designs mm-hmm. of the bikes, and we had it, and they told us it was on a grid, and we had, and Mobius had done some basic ideas, visualizations of it. But as far as breaking it down into an actual competition with shot-by-shot boarding, that's something that I pretty much did myself. In those days, we've said this many times, there was no computer animation. There was no software to animate things on the computer. You just basically rendered things 24 times to make a second. And so what we had to do for all the, the whole film, wherever there was computer graphics, is we had to storyboard pretty much precisely what we were going to see. Like, what, what was the camera? Where was the angle? What was the progression of movement throughout the frame? Because you were going to then have to take that information and translate it into numbers. How far away? How fast is it moving? What's the angle? And so our storyboards had to be really almost precisely a division of what the final movie would be. On the other side of the screen, it all looks so easy. And because we were animators, we were used to doing that because people who draw you really have to imagine what you're going to have. There's no other tool. It just goes from your brain onto the paper, and that's it. Yeah. And so the fact that Jerry and I were 2D animators made that possible because in our heads we could see the scene. Yeah. And we sat down and drew it exactly as we wanted to see it, and then that would be approved by Steve. And when that was approved, the second thing we had to do was talk to the computer company and say to them, okay, you have unique the language for your computer how do we now describe what we see here into your language right and they would and they would give us we would discuss how to describe models and describe the manipulation and describe everything else and then we would create these series of graphs on graph paper and charts and exposure sheets literally with xyz yaw picture roll coordinates it written frame by frame yeah and uh one of the first things that we did was the like cycle chase. And since you couldn't see motion on a computer, you would do the storyboards and then you do the graphs and diagrams to describe it. And then those would be breaking down into numbers that a computer could absorb. And then those would be entered in the computer. And then after all that, you would generate some imagery. And the very first time that I would see my animation moving was in 70 millimeter. Wow. Because they would film it out on a, you know, on a film recorder. And the first pass, they would literally just do what you would call like a vector test. It would just be lines, the outlines of the objects. 
But then we'd go into the, into the stage at Disney and they would put they'd project that on a 70 millimeter screen. So we're standing there. And the very first time we see our work is 70 millimeter. And I got to tell you, the first time we saw those light cycles whipping through those canyons, everybody was just blown away. They no one had seen anything <laughs> like ever, never seen that yeah. kind of motion, like in dimension. And it blew everyone's socks off. And I'll never forget that. And then we, you know, so that and one thing about that sequence, I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but. All the good guys' bikes are blue. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. I take it back. All the good guys' bikes are orange. They're, they're like, you know, warm colors, like orange and, and, and red. But Tron and the good guys are actually wearing blue suits. And the yeah, reverse is yeah. all the bad guys are wearing orange vector lines, and they're all riding, they're all riding blue bikes. It's opposite. Because when we started the movie, everybody thought that the good guys should be warm and orange and the bad guys should be cool. But then it turned out it was the opposite. The blue looked much cooler. So that's why in the Tron and his guys are riding the orange bikes and the blue bikes are getting killed. Because they're, you know, it's a reverse thing. I don't know if you ever noticed that. But anyway, the sequence to me was it's and if you ever look, there's. You can go online and see the side-by-side comparison of my storyboards time to the final movie, and they're just exact. Yeah, yeah I've, I've actually seen the on YouTube. I saw the video about the storyboarding process with you talking about the storyboards and showing us how you drew each part of the scene for the light cycles and when uh, Tron and Ram uh, form a blockade, a wall to block off one of the uh, bad guy programs, and his light cycle crashes into their into their walls that whole process i think you had i'm just guessing here i think you had about seven or eight different storyboards for that one little short short part of the scene and um, i was wondering how you would communicate that two-dimensional drawing and, and the idea of the coordinates of those vehicles the light cycles and and the parts that would fly off the debris from the collision how how would you communicate that to computer animators and the only thing i could think of is that you, you must have come up with basically a, perhaps the first of its kind but a three-dimensional coordinate system frame for frame perhaps could you talk yeah, a little bit about exactly that <clears throat> well yeah it's cartesian coordinates right xyz that's how you center a location and then so a bike would have a center point right and you'd have to locate that center point every frame and then it, the bike could turn either it either lean left and right tip forward and back or turn left and right, right? So that's yaw pitch roll. Yeah. So everybody would have six six numbers for every frame. Oh my goodness. X Y Z where it is and yaw pitch roll how it's how it's how it's aiming, and that was uh, what you'd have to write for 24 times for one second of movement. For for each light cycle for each object. For each light cycle and and the camera. Yes, that's yeah. right. Because the camera has to follow all that as you right. the path it's you want the camera, the camera to go on. The camera's moving. You got to write the camera every frame too. Right. The other storyboard sequence that I really enjoyed doing was the uh, ring game, because oh. in the script that has sort of a basic description of it, it was really, really like one line. And I came up with that whole design of having the two sets of concentric rings that the guys stood on, and then they would bounce a highlight ball off the ceiling and bounce it down, and if it hit one of the rings, you missed it, and it, the ring would disappear. So the idea was to make to eliminate your 
the other guy's rings. Yes, that's uh, amazing. I, came up with, I just came up with that idea and storyboarded it, and that stayed completely unchanged all the way into the final movie and into the video game. My friends, my fellow conscripts, we have scored. I feel so much better. <laughs> I actually made it into the console game. So I always tell my students that that's the power of the storyboard artist. You know, if you, if you draw something in storyboards right. and everybody likes it, it's going all the way, you know, it's not going to change. Yes, it, it's the case where the customer doesn't know what they want, they need you to tell them. Yeah, and, and the, of course the, secret, the kind of the sad secret of Hollywood is that probably most directors don't really, can't really imagine in their heads what they want. Mm. They sort of describe something verbally. So if you're a storyboard artist and you come up with and say, you mean, you mean this and you show them a drawing, they go, yeah, that's it. A lot of times that's the movie. Wow. I also remember uh, looking at some storyboarding you did. This was another YouTube video I, I found where you talked about the storyboarding for the scene where the recognizer comes out of the trash heap, basically, after Flynn has put together the parts of a recognizer to fly away. The storyboards show... I'm not sure if storyboards I saw so much as it was maybe the graph paper you're talking about where it described the path that the recognizer would fly out and also the path of the camera as it would follow. Yeah, I think I have pretty sure I have diagrams of that still. Yeah. And the way that mapped into the actual film, it's just it's just a few seconds of film. And today we would take something like that for granted, I'm sure. But just the idea of having the camera track and pitch and y'all as the recognizer itself does that as well, was something I don't think anybody ever seen before. Well, did you see this thing recently where these guys redid Tron in one day? I did. It wasn't one day. <laughs> well, it was close, though. It was like two days. Yeah. 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 I, well, I see that's, that. And that's where it is now. You know, it's like all that yeah. stuff we did that took so long was like handmade is nothing now. I saw nothing. that video a couple of weeks ago. It was very impressive. They were using a, a 3D development uh, platform called um, Blender. Yeah, Blender, there you go. And as I watched them recreate the, the life cycle scene, uh, I have to admit I was kind of hoping it would be a little harder for him. <laughs> <laughs> and they kept saying in the piece, well, you know, we're not sure how they did this. And so I actually wrote those guys and I said, hey, you know, I did it. If you want to know, give me a get a hold of me. And they yeah. never got a hold. Yeah. So. For me. Well, they said they did it in one day, but as I watched the video, they also said they actually worked on it all all through the night, all nighter, pulled an all nighter on it. So that's fitting because of all the all nighters. I'm sure you and Richard Taylor and others pulled making Tron happen in the first place. So I'm guessing, Bill, that as you were saying earlier, you did the storyboards, and it was sort of after uh, some more money came along for the film that computer imagery was considered. So. At the outset of doing the storyboards, does that mean that you really didn't have any anticipation of translating this into computer imagery? No, we didn't. We were just boarding it as an animated film. You know, we, um, but I have to say, as I said, very quickly after we got to Disney, the dynamic changed completely because once Steve got the Disney deal, all of a sudden having Disney behind him and all that that meant just completely opened up his brain about the possibilities of the film and also when you have the disney name on something as you know it, it's it's different than any other studio so as soon as the word got out as soon as disney announced that they had signed steve lisberger to do a movie about a, a computer thing 
computer companies all over the world started calling. Wow. And that's how that happened, you know. Anybody who could make an image with a computer was sending a, a, sam- a sample reel and saying, hey, how about me? How about my company? But I got to tell you, there weren't many. You know, I think there were maybe a dozen. And that just shows how the business was. Right. In those days, you had to build your own computers and write your own software to do computer imagery. Yeah. So there weren't that many companies that were seriously doing it. But we got reels from all of them. And um, when you look at the l- level of sophistication when we started, it was pretty primitive. And it was literally like building an airliner in flight, you know. Steve basically just had all these companies basically say, yeah, we can develop it in the next fast enough to do what you want. And so the whole movie was based on on hope and faith, you know. Wow. Because unlike today, where you, you know, and believe me, this is how it's been for the last 20 years. They make you do these tests, right? And if you can't do the test and look exactly like they want, they, they don't want to hire you. Uh, that was not the way Tron was done. You know, like when I was at Digital Productions, we were the, we were the company that did talking animals, you know. Yeah. They won the Oscar for Babe. And then we started doing all these talking animal movies like Dr. Doolittle and, you know, Cats and Dogs and Scooby-Doo and Garfield and all these movies. Right. And um, we, we had made like what, 250 different talking animals from raccoons to dogs to monkeys to cows to sheep. And we'd still get these commercial houses saying, well, we'd like you to do a test. And we go, a test <laughs> of what? And they go, well, we want a, a black and white bulldog. We go, we've done, you know, we've done like 60 dogs. Don't you believe we can do this? Well, you haven't done our dog. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Now, that's, and compare that to Tron, where there was no company in the world in 1980 that could have produced anything at all that looked like the light cycle or the, or the right. solar system. So no what one could you could even do. test against? What could you be asked to test against? Yeah, so you couldn't ask for a test to prove you could do it because there, no one could do it. So you got to right. give Steve Lisberger amazing credit for talking to these people and having the guts to say, I believe that when we get there, they'll have the tools to do this. And that was how that movie was, was made. It really was made just on the fly. I mean, the technology you created it. At the time, just in time. Yeah, technology. we literally, literally waited to see what would show up on Monday, you know. We didn't even know. Wow, that's truly amazing. So um, I get a sense from your portfolio that the computer-based theme as part of a storyline continued after Tron. You were the animator for Cursor from Auto Man, which was uh, <laughs> 83 to 84. Auto Man was one of my favorite series growing up as well. Did Cursor well, reminds me of Bit from Tron a little bit? Um, was Bit or, or the idea of, of the hero having a sidekick part of what um, resulted in Cursor? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the Bit was just one of those cases where we'd sit around with the computer companies and say, what can you guys do? You know, can you do this? Can you do that? Well, we can't do fabric. We can't do liquid. Right. We can't do this. We can't do that. What can you do? Well, we can make things interpenetrate. What does that mean? And then they'd show us, see, it passes right through each other. We go, oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah. And so based on that, we just invented the bit yeah. just, to, just to, to exploit something that the computer could actually do that looked different than what people had seen on the screen before. And that's how the bit came about. And uh, when Donald Kushner, who, of course, produced Tron, sold the idea of Auto Man, which is a Tron spinoff unofficially, mm-hmm. he 
felt that that would be a fun thing to have would be a little Tinkerbell type called the cursor. And that's how he came up. And of course, he went to me and said, well, you know, you, you're my animator for computers. Can you do this? And I went, yeah, I'd love to do that. So we did it. And it was a lot of fun. It was <laughs> oh, a lot that's of great. Fun. Yeah. That's great. So I guess when I think about Bit, all the paths and the swoops and the quick movements that Bit would make, that seems faster from frame to frame than, say, tracking a recognizer coming down the canyon, which is sort of a bigger, hulkier vehicle that, that moves a little more slowly, if you will. Was the movement of bit communicated in the same coordinate manner that you use for other things, the three space? Yeah, and Tron, that was the only way you could do it. Yeah. Still just Cartesian coordinates, you know, but you're an animator, so animators time things and make things move according to the characters. Right. It's not a question of the technology. It's a question of the artistry. I wanted to ask you, um, you mentioned in the storyboarding that uh, you and uh, I guess Jerry Reese and Mobius, the three of you, just really hammered through all the storyboards for Tron. Is that am I getting that right? (laughs) Yes, you are. That's exactly it. I can only imagine what it would be like to work with with the likes of Mobius. Did you also get to work with uh, Sid Mead and and, uh, Peter Lloyd um, on a routine basis? Well, Peter, I worked with for years because you know we met him at Digital Productions, and then he worked at he worked down at, at the Animalympics office with us, and then he ended up coming over to Disney. So I had, a, I had the pleasure of working with Peter Lloyd personally for many years. Mobius, I mean Sid Mead, very rarely came by. You know, he just worked in his own studio. Okay. And he sent drawings in. So even though, I, even though I met Sid, I never had a chance to sit with him and work with him. I'd like to ask you. Uh about Tron, the story of Tron, and the world we're in today. Do you have any thoughts on the relevance of Tron, what it is to be in the computer or to have a computer run our lives as compared to today's society? I don't know. I mean, I think that the, um, you know, there were some things that were, there were were general themes of Tron about, you know, being cautious about artificial intelligence. I guess that would be the biggest and most obvious and most relevant thing, although it may not be the way that people think. I do think that the artificial intelligence that I think it can be a a real threat to the way um, to a lot of people, but not in the way that it was pictured with the MCP. The MCP seemed like a malicious guy who was out to gain power. But what's really going to happen is artificial intelligence, which is coming on really fast, is going to basically replace the need for human activity in many, 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 many areas, especially information and research and advice, you know, like legal research, legal advice, medical research, medical advice, real estate, you know, uh, artificial intelligence will be able to do so many of those informational jobs and advising jobs far more effectively than human beings can do. Now, wait a minute. I wrote you. I've gotten 2,415 times smarter since then. And that's going to be a real issue, you know. It's really going to be a real issue to a lot of, to, to the whole job market. Right. So in a weird sort of way, I think that, you know, when I, th- that's the one thing people, you know, remember what's his name, talked about singularity, you know, we all know about, you know, Skynet and how we're all afraid that AI is <laughs> going to basically kill us that way. It's probably not going to kill us that way. Right. But what it is going to do is it's just, it's just going to become so much more economically, you know, uh, profitable for business that they're going to just start putting it in. And you're going to see a sea change in the way, you know, 
human beings uh, live their lives. And I think, ironically, that's one thing that's going to happen. The other thing I always yeah. like, I, so that was the whole principle of the op, the underlying operating system being flawed, you know. I still think that's an interesting theme that you could sort of talk a little bit about, but that's another yeah. deal. Yeah. yeah. After Tron, look, I had the hook about this computer animation thing. It was so exciting. It was, <laughs> it was so groundbreaking. It's like, how often in the in your life do you come up on a artistic medium that no one has ever done before? There you go. Where every day you can conceivably do something that no one has ever done. You know, it was just so exciting to me. And so, the very first thing I did after Tron was work for Magi Synthivision, which was one of the companies that did Tron. And I and Richard Taylor was over there at Magi, and I did a couple of commercials for them, like Worm War One, you know, yeah. I basically animated it the way I animated Tron. And then after that, you know, I worked for um, Donald Kushner and did the cursor thing. And then right after that, I the guys who founded Triple I, which was the company that did the Solar Sailor, mm-hmm. those guys started a new company called Digital Productions. Ah, and that was John Whitney and Gary Demos. And they were down in the marina in L.A. And they, I knew them, of course, from Tron. And I went, I went down there and said, you know, I, you guys need an animator. And they said, we're just beginning to start to do animation. We don't really have animation software still, but, mm-hmm. but we know you know how to work with this stuff. So, yeah, you should come aboard. So they had just completed The Last Starfighter which was um, a big step forward in computer graphics. And I went down there and my whole job was to bring character animation to the computer. And so that was my, that was my singular kind of like assignment at digital productions. And so we just started doing commercials and things using, you know, and and basically slowly inventing hierarchical structures and other means to animate characters. And, you know, we did some really interesting stuff we did, you know, Hard Woman for Mick Jagger. We did um, we did the uh, Owl for Jim Henson's movie Labyrinth. So it was wow. it was an interesting time, and that was digital productions. And I worked there for a couple of years. I think from like eighty end middle of eighty four to the middle of eighty six, and then that was when that thing happened where this company called Omnibus bought everybody. Mm. There was a, there were three big companies in L A. It was Omnibus. Robert Abel and Digital Productions. And Omnibus was was owned by these big, some investing conglomerate. And they decided, they said, well, wait a minute. We can basically completely control the computer graphics business if we buy these other two companies, Robert Abel and Digital Productions. Oh, okay. Because neither of them is really doing that well. So they bought both companies. And since Robert Abel was was the best salesman and the flashiest guy, they basically dumped digital productions and tried to move everybody into Robert Abel. Oh, okay. So I never, and I, at that point I left. So okay. I, there was a period of about six weeks where I was, 
they're still in the digital productions building and still working on the digital productions machines, but was technically getting a Robert Abel paycheck. Oh, okay. There is kind of a funny story. That, uh, during that time, I was invited to speak at a computer convention in, in France called uh, Imagina in Monte Carlo. Mm. And I flew over there with Jeff Kleiser. I don't know if you know Jeff Kleiser. He's mm-hmm. a really famous visual effects guy. And he actually were, did work at Robert Abel. So they flew the two of us over to, to do a presentation at Monte Carlo. And we stayed at this very nice hotel, the Lowe's Hotel. And when I filled out my registration for the hotel and it put down company name, I put down Robert Abel and Associates because technically they had now folded, they had folded digital productions into Robert Abel. Yeah. When I went to check out of that hotel, they slapped like $2,000 onto my bill, which at the time <laughs> was a lot of money. That would be like maybe 20000 today. And I wow. went, what, what is this? This is a mistake. And they go, oh, no. They said, Robert Abel was here last year, and he left without paying his bill, so we, we gave it to you. <laughs> <laughs> I said, but I don't really work for Robert Abel. And they went, oh, they went yeah, right. so, so I actually went to Jeff Kleiser and I said, look, Jeff, you actually work for him. You have a much better chance of getting him to pay this. And believe it or not, Jeff Kleiser, what a guy. He had them <laughs> switch that money to his bill and uh, eventually got Robert Abel to pick it up. So oh, anyway, that was my That's big funny. experience with Robert Abel. <laughs> so I think um, around that time, uh, 1986 or so, is that when you started Croyer Films? It was after digital productions closed. Yeah, it was after that crash when yeah. everything was kind of dead. That I think um, that Star Chaser film happened right about then. And I was out of work and... Uh, they called me up and said, look, we, we're doing these computer spaceships, but they're really a mess. Can you come in and help save this? And I came in and I said, okay, I'll do that. So I went in and I animated all the computer spaceships in this movie, Star Chaser. Nice. And while we were doing that, they were using a, a very simple plotter system to do that. And I saw that idea and I thought, this is a really cool thing to do. If you had, you could build complex computer objects, but render them as drawings, it would be really, you could, then you could get the power of computer imagery and combine it with hand-drawn organic stuff and you could do everything. Yeah. You know, there's, there's many things computers couldn't do, but there's many things hand-drawn artists couldn't do. So I thought this is a way to, where you could do everything and that was my idea for Courier Films. And so I approached my friend Tim Heidman, who was a software engineer, and I said, could you write this program? Went, yeah, I can write it. And so yeah. I took out a, I can't remember how I got that money. I got a loan and then I funded Tim to do that and he created that software nice. and then we said well we got to do something with it so then we uh, I forget how I met Michael Bryant but I met a guy named Michael Bryant who was a motocross racer and he had an idea for a, a kids show about motocross racing called Ultracross but he couldn't figure out how you could animate motorcycles by hand and I said well I have a system that can do exactly that and so together we developed this idea for this TV show and I had this test software that was just sort of not quite done and we had this idea we went out and we tried to and no one would understand what we were talking about and no one would give us a deal and I'll never forget this night and by the way I, I, I just recently was on a show or an interview where 
somebody was saying that almost everybody who's ever sold a show has had this very same experience. I was literally, like, literally broke. I couldn't figure out how I was going to make my next mortgage payment. I'd used up all my savings. I owed this loan and the software. I really was wondering, how am I going to make it through the next couple of weeks? And literally, the phone rang, and it was Michael Bryan. And he, and he was literally at a party. And he had met a guy at the party who was this new development executive for Stephen Cannell. And the guy's job was to find interesting new animated kid shows. And he heard about our Ultra Cross show. And Michael said, he wants to meet with us tomorrow morning. Oh, boy. And we went in and we met with that executive, Jeffrey Scott, and he bought our show on the spot. I knew you'd escape. They haven't built a circuit that could hold you. Ultra Cross. And it was never finished because here's what happened. In those days, all children's television was based on toys. Literally every show was really existed pretty much just to sell a toy. And right. so when we came up with this cool idea for Ultra Cross, everybody loved the idea. But the main value of it would be to sell these motorcycle toys. Right. So we went around and we met with all the big toy companies. And there was a company that they liked. I can't remember the name of this company, but it wasn't one of the really big ones. But they made a deal with this company to do the Ultra Cross toys. And so we started production on the show, Ultra Cross. We were going to use Nelvana in Toronto for the animation. And then we would do all the computer animation here in Hollywood in our studio. And we started making that series in about, we got about six episodes in when uh, the toy company went bankrupt. Oh. And Stephen Candle said, well, you know, the contracts are all wrapped up in the bankruptcy. And so it's, it's a mess. So just for canceling it. So he canceled, canceled the show. You got about six episodes of the show done? We did six episodes of the computer animation. We had done the storyboards. Nelvana had just started doing a little bit of the production of the characters, but nothing was ever finished in color, you know. Okay. We never even got one episode finished in color. Wow. And, but so what, what I ended up with was I had, by that time, I had finished the software, right, to do this hidden line stuff. And I had the computer and I had the plotter so I could do the exact process that I had envisioned, but I had no show. So Stephen J. Cannell, who had canceled the show, was such a nice guy. He said, said, look, you don't have to get out of your office. You can you can use that office for like the next four months if you want. Nice. He was really nice about it. And so I said, we got to make, we got to do, we got to do a demo here, like right away to show people what we can do because nobody has ever seen this before. We need to do something to show what we can do. And that was the idea of technological threat. Yes, I love that. I, I found that and watched that and just loved it. Yeah, we said, let's do something where half the characters are done by computer and half are done by hand. And I just had that idea, you know, that computers are placing hand-drawn animation. Yeah, which is yeah. A metaphor we thought would happen. And so we just knocked out technological threat in just a few months. And and uh, I had some money saved over from the from the Ultracross job. You know, they paid me some money. And I, I basically, once again, I spent all the money on technological threat. <laughs> And uh, we got that movie made, and it just went crazy. It started winning film festivals, and it got an Academy Award nomination. Which I was saw astounding. that. That's great. It was not even on, that was not even in my realm of imagination at the time that I could ever get an Academy Award nomination. But as soon wow, as that happened, great. the work just started flowing in, you know. And all of a sudden, our little company was going. And one of the things we did was Computer Warriors. You know, Mattel came to us. Yeah. And said, so that one, instead of creating a show and then making a toy line, they already had a toy line. So they wanted ah. to do the, 
do the show. So that's what we did. A very low budget, too. It was really, really a, not the greatest quality thing. It was super low budget. But we were, you know, kind of looking for different kinds of jobs and thought it would be fun to do. So we did it. Yeah. I yeah. thought Computer Warriors was really interesting because it's kind of a slice from my childhood, having grown up with Commodore 64s and Apple IIs and working with diskettes sure. and things like that. It was kind of like it sort of represented when, when the kid in Computer Warriors takes his handful of discs to go over to his friend's house to use his computer. That was basically me at that age. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing, you know, once again, it was pretty innovative and that's why it was fun to do, you know. I know you have so many other films uh, you worked on. I'm just going to read them off here. Jetsons, Fern Gully, Green Mile, Flintstones, Rugrats in Paris. What about, I see a company here, Rhythm and Hughes. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, that was basically a third of my professional career, basically, was better Rhythm and Hughes, you know, because okay. I, you know, we had Courier Films and we did Fern Gully and then we did some other projects. But after Fern Gully, we were trying to develop our own feature. And it was impossible to get finance because all the studios had decided they didn't want to fund independent studios doing animation. They wanted their own in-house animation department. Ah. So Sue and I ended up signing a deal with Warner Brothers to go in and help develop movies. We went to Warner Brothers for a couple of years, but that didn't work out. We just didn't like the direction they were going at all. We just didn't fit there. And you've been in the system as long as I have. You hear many promises. Many reassurances, many brave plans. And uh, so we left there. And literally right after I left there, I got a call from my agent saying, um, hey, you know, the, um, they got some computer animated commercials down at Rhythm and Hughes. They're looking for a director. Would you like to go down there? And I had known the Rhythm and Hughes founders since they founded the company. You know, John Hughes, Pauline Cho, Keith Culver. I'd known them. I'd been, to, I'd been to the Rhythm and Hughes and visited them because it was a small industry at the time. Yeah. So it was kind of like, you know, yeah, I'd love to work with those guys. So I went down there and they put me at a desk in one of the rooms and I stayed at that desk for 12 years. Wow. And just kept doing, it was so exciting because Rhythm and Hughes was doing, they just gotten the Oscar for Babe, right? Wow. And they were doing just just the most cutting-edge computer graphics stuff. And they were like one of the top studios in the world, you know, doing all this amazing work. And I just started, you know, I started with commercials, but then when we got our first feature deals, you know, like I was animation director, and, you know, I think the first one I did was the Flintstones, Beaver Rug Vegas, then we did Cats and Dogs, Scooby Doo, Garfield, Rugrats. Started doing all these movies, and I was animation director on all those movies. And it was a blast, you know? And then I did tons of commercials, too. I must have done 50 commercials or movies. We did Coca Cola Polar Bears, you know? Oh, all these really, wow. really fun things. So I, I, I absolutely loved Rhythm and Hughes. It was the most wonderful place to work, the nicest bosses, you know? Uh, the greatest people and the greatest, the most family-like atmosphere created by the owners because it was not owned by a corporation. It was owned by the four artists and they treated everyone like family. And I have to say it was one of the greatest studios. And, you know, oh, the that reason that wonderful. in the end was it was just unfair that, you know, you could not survive in the, you know, 
in the 90s if you didn't have a huge corporation owning you because that was when foreign subsidies kicked in, you know, and yeah. tax breaks and other stuff. All the all the visual effects in Hollywood started going everywhere else in the world but Los Angeles. Oh. Rhythm Hughes is really the last holdout, and they finally won the Academy Award for The Life of Pi in seven days after the Oscars declared bankruptcy. Goodness. Um, it's really a sad story, you know. Um, yeah. But I have to say that my time there was completely wonderful. I just had a great time. And then what, hap- what happened to me was, of course, by the time 2010 rolled around, I'd been there for 12 years. You know, I was the oldest person in the building, mm. other than John Hughes, the owner. And, you know, I could... The business was changing. It was, as I could told you, it was getting much rougher. The hours were getting much longer. You were working 50, 60 hour weeks and everything. And I was just not really feeling like that was right for me. And that yeah. was this opportunity came to teach at Chapman. You know, the yeah. Chapman University called me up and said, you fit the profile perfectly for what we're doing for someone to build our animation visual effects program. And I had the very same thing happen there. I went down there and it was the most amazing place with the most amazing facility and the nicest people and the best bosses. And I said, wow, this is the right thing for the next step. And so I, I left Rhythm Hughes. And then, of course, a year later, Rhythm Hughes was bankrupt. So that would turn out to be a good move. Mm. But anyway, that was how that all worked. That sounds amazing. And Chapman University, if I recall, um, in the top 10 uh, film animation schools in the world, top six in the country. Yeah, that's it. That's us. Wow. <laughs> we're, we're way up there. I actually think we deserve to be higher, but some places rest on their laurels. <laughs> <laughs> so I also wanted to ask you, I think you've worked with your wife, Susan, on several projects. Did you and Susan start Courier Films together, and what projects have you done together? Yes, we did. We started Courier Films together. Well, you know, we met at Disney. We met Back when I was on Fox and Hound, Sue was a Disney, a key assistant animator in the Disney animation department. That was where we met, you know. And Disney in those days was like being in Iowa. It was like this family environment in the middle of Hollywood. And everybody, you know, still, I still have dozens and dozens of close friends from those 40 years, you know. Still very close friends. Because we just bonded so much as animators. Anyway, that's how Sue and I met. We met there. And then during the next decade, you know, when I was doing computer stuff, she was doing 2D. She worked for Richard Williams and Raggedy Ann. She worked for Eric Goldberg on um, Ziggy's Gift. So she was busy wow. doing she, she was busy doing 2D animation as a freelance animator. And then when we got this idea for Courier Films, of course, we did that as a together. And then she came in and became kind of the art director, producer of our company. And she was really the casting director. She found all the talent. You know, like Tony Ficilli and Ralph Eggleston and, you know, just superstars that she developed. Uh, You know, Stephen Pilcher. I mean, she literally found Stephen Pilcher by looking at a children's book and saw this Canadian guy up in Toronto who had just done a children's book. And that's all he had ever done. And she contacted him and said, would you like to help design an animated show? And then we actually flew to Toronto and met him and hired him to do a project for us. And then he came down here, and then he, of course he ended up at Pixar, and he was the you know animation director of Brave. I mean, designed Brave, and he designed Toy Story wow. 4. He's become one of the greatest production designers in all of animation. And that was that's that's how, that was all because of Sue. You know, Sue basically could recognize talent. You know, Chris Sasaki became one of Pixar's number one character designers. She walked by the desk at Woodbury and saw his drawings on the desk and said, "Who did these?" 
And she instantly knew the guy was a superstar and she nurtured him and got him into Pixar. So, wow. you know, Sue was, Sue was really the secret weapon behind our company. And all of the, the reason anything we did looked good was because she was the one who uh, found the right people or else, you know, guided us with the direction. So we were a pretty good team, you know. And then, nice. uh, anyway, so that's, you know, and then when Choir Films closed, you know, she didn't want to go to Rhythm and Hughes. So she ended up, um, she had, she got into teaching way before I did. She, she was hired at CalArts to teach animation. Huh. And that's where she started. And uh, so she taught for years before she got me into it. <laughs> Very good. I see that you, the two of you won the June Foray Award from the International Animation Society for Contributions to the Art and Industry of Animation, 2017, I believe. Yep, we did. I think we were the first couple to do that. Wow. Uh, and we were really, that was really a nice moment to do that as a couple, you know. Yeah. Because I really felt that that was appropriate, you know, because we, as a unit, we're, individually we're okay, but as a couple, I think we're pretty good. Nice. <laughs> that award in 2017, I think, is a testament to how long uh, you've been able to contribute to film animation. We came out here the same month, March 1975. <laughs> so 45 years ago. It was very different, believe me. Very yeah. different. I've had the most, I've had the most blessed, blessed career. You know, I came out here from Chicago yes. knowing absolutely no one with literally <laughs> no skills and just, you know, I've had such great fortune going from great job to great job with great people and, um, you know, just really, really uh, I've had a wonderful, a wonderful career here in Hollywood. Music from the Tron soundtrack. Additional music is Water by Tenger and Give Us Color by Zen. Intro music by me. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support the IO Tower at patreon.com slash ddprogram. Until next time, I'm your host, David Fleming. End of line. Mm -hmm.